Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. Nurture your mind with great thoughts. To believe in the heroic makes heroes. That's a quote by uh, former UK Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. I don't know how personally heroic he was, but I absolutely love this quote. I came across it at the beginning of this year of 2021, and I've just sort of used it as my mantra for the year, um, especially I think as there's so many sort of resources, uh, so many sources of information constantly um, in our minds and in our ears and on the TV, I think that it's important to realize that uh, what we consume has a big impact on us and that if we are nurturing our mind with great thoughts, if we are reading great stories, if we are watching great stories, that has a big impact and that believing in the heroic makes us heroic. Welcome to this fifth episode of Born of Wonder. I'm Katie Marquette. If you are somebody who listens to podcasts right as they come out, you will notice that this podcast episode is coming out not on its usual Tuesday, but on a Thursday afternoon, which was not the plan, but that's just how it happened. So I'm trying to stick to a schedule here of um, releasing on Tuesdays, but uh, I'd rather have it come out at all uh, rather than it just not being at the right time. So Uh, This week, a little bit of an anomaly, but um, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're listening, and thank you so much to the people who have been uh, reviewing the podcast on iTunes, um, who've left comments or just star rating. Uh, It means so much to me. I get like an email when um, somebody's left a review, and I just love to hear your thoughts and comments. And just practically, it's so important for the podcast um, to to know that people are listening and liking it, um, because then it will show up in people's searches. So thank you so much if you've done that. And if you are enjoying the podcast, um, maybe that's something that you could consider doing, just heading over to iTunes and leaving a short review. So on this podcast, we explore all kinds of things. We've um, had a pretty varied uh, subject matter so far on the podcast. We've talked about uh, the labyrinth and Piranesi, and we've talked about the wardrobe and Narnia. We've uh, also covered Groundhog Day, very important. Um, I love that episode. (laughs) If you don't have time to watch the whole movie Groundhog Day and just want to relive some of the clips, that's a great episode to go back to. Um, That was our most recent one released on Groundhog Day on February 2nd. Uh, And next week, we're going to look at uh, festivity and specifically the um, sort of bizarre, very Scottish tradition of Burns Day, which was back on January 25th, but uh, that many Scots say you can celebrate all year long, and it's going to be released on Fat Tuesday on Mardi Gras, a day of celebration. So that's something to look forward to. But today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about heroes and anti-heroes and the importance of heroism in uh, our literature and in our television and our movies and uh, what what is a hero and what is an anti-hero. 
So if you look up the concept of anti-hero, you'll see all kinds of articles about the rise of the anti-hero or the flawed hero. And um, I think that anybody who's uh, sort of been following television uh, in recent years will recognize the anti-hero pretty quickly. Uh, if you've watched Mad Men, um, Dom Draper is such the perfect anti-hero. Um, and I'm not familiar with it, but uh, Breaking Bad also features a uh, an anti-hero. I know the basic premise. And uh, both of these men, you know, we're rooting for them, um, but they are so flawed. They often do things that are objectively uh, terrible, and yet we're still sort of watching, and we don't really know uh, how it's going to end, and we don't really even know what we're rooting for sometimes. Um, if you've seen Mad Men, you know that that last episode has been uh, the subject of much debate. Uh, not giving anything away here, but we just don't really know uh, if Don, if Don Draper has actually reached a point of um, sort of enlightenment and clarity, uh, or if he's actually just realized uh, how meaningless everything is and that everything can become uh, advertising, basically. So um, the anti-hero is very appealing to many people because, uh, let's face it, a lot of us have a lot of struggles. And we see those struggles reflected in the anti-hero. Um, we see uh, their weaknesses are very clearly on display. Um, they have a lot of a lot of struggles, a lot of things they have to overcome. Maybe they have trauma in their past. So essentially, I think um, anti-heroes are seen as relatable. Uh, Jay Gatsby is an anti-hero. I'm going to quote here from an article in Relevant magazine called The Rise of the Anti-Hero. Uh, this was written by Jonathan Michael. It was actually published back in 2013, so you can see this is something that people have been thinking about for a while, but he gives us a good definition of the anti-hero. He writes, The anti-hero, also known as the flawed hero, is a common character archetype for the antagonist that has been around since the comedies and tragedies of Greek theater. Unlike the traditional hero who is morally upright and steadfast, the anti-hero usually has a flawed moral character. The moral compromises he or she makes can often be seen as the unpleasant means to an appropriately desired end, such as breaking a finger to get answers, whatever it takes for the protagonist to come to justice. Other times, however, the moral flaws are simply moral flaws, like alcoholism, infidelity, or an uncontrollable and violent temper. I think we tune in week after week in the hope of seeing our cast of characters eventually turn it around through some kind of redemptive act, whether it's to see them make better choices, slowly improve over time, or lay down their lives so that someone else might live. Redemption is a powerful and resonating piece of storytelling. So I agree with a lot of what he said there, especially um, that first just sort of sum up a uh, definition of uh, how the anti-hero plays out, how sometimes, you know, we see them doing something maybe morally compromising, but we think that it's justified. Um, think about in Breaking Bad, how he's uh, he, you know, going to start this drug ring, but it's because of his uh, cancer. And, and this is the way that he's going to save his family. So we say, we, we start out with this premise of like, well, I'm not so sure about the drug ring, but I understand his motives and maybe, you know, there's some way that this is justified. I think with anti-heroes like Don Draper, it can be a little more complicated because his motives maybe aren't as, uh, as pure. He's not necessarily trying to protect his family, um, although we learn lots about him as the series goes on and we sort of realize that a lot of his 
um, need for perceived success and his sort of uh, struggle with intimacy and all kinds of things like that come from a very tragic childhood. So again, things are explained, maybe even justified. But sometimes, you know, we watch shows or we read a book or something about um, an antihero who is simply struggling. Um, they are an alcoholic, they are unfaithful to their spouse, um, and there's really no rhyme or reason for it. They just, this is their struggle and this is what they're going through. So Jonathan Michael here in Relevant Magazine um, takes the very optimistic view that uh, readers and watchers are tuning in because they hope uh, that that this person will be redeemed, that they are waiting for the moment when they overcome those things, uh, whether it is morally justifiable or not. They are just, they're rooting for them and they think that really deep down that they are a good person. Um, realistically, I don't know if I really believe that. Uh, I think there are plenty of shows that simply glorify the anti-hero and actually glorify them for their flaw flaws, um, not in spite of them. And I think that that's sort of the dangerous uh, side of the anti-hero is that it's not that we want our heroes to be perfect. Um, that's actually usually pretty boring, but that we want our heroes to struggle in the hopes of becoming good, that they are going to overcome certain things. And I think there are a lot of shows, uh, a lot of movies right now that don't really show too much overcoming of vices, but actually just celebrate those vices and in turn give uh, viewers and readers uh, the, the opportunity to say, well, you know, we're all really messed up and that's just life. <laughs> that's kind of the end of the story. You know, there's no redemption aspect. Um, but I think that deep, deep down, um, we, we do, we do want that redemption, don't we? Um, I think that that, uh, that, that sort of just placating ourselves with, uh, well, I admire this person, even though they are deeply flawed, um, deeply flawed like me. Um, we should also be hoping that, um, we can overcome our own flaws, just like we should be hoping that for our heroes. Um, but the anti-hero makes that, makes that sort of complicated. So here's another quote um, from G.K. Chesterton. Uh, it's a very famous quote. You've probably heard it. It's, uh, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. So I think that here we have a very important question about what the role of stories are um, and the role of our media is uh, in, in fiction, especially, you know, what sort of stories are we talking about? Are we taking that uh, Benjamin Disraeli idea, nurturing our mind with great thoughts, believing in the heroic makes heroes? I think that the best stories um, teach us uh, conviction and they give us hope and they give us uh, we already, look, we know the world is hard. We know it's a terrible place many times. Most of us have been through um, difficult times, have had, you know, bad things happen. Bad things happen to good people. Um, we all have things that we struggle with that we know uh, aren't good. And that's, that's life. We know that. We don't need a story to tell us that. But we do need to be told that we can overcome those things. We need to believe that. And um, I don't know if modern storytelling is really as focused on the idea of telling us that the dragons in our lives can be killed. And I think that that can be potentially detrimental. Here's a quote from Joseph Campbell, who of course is famous for uh, sort of defining the hero's journey and um, what that means and what that looks like, the arc of the hero in a narrative. He wrote that a hero is someone who has given his or her life to something bigger than oneself. I think this is a great definition of a hero because it shows that the fundamental 
deepest part of a hero is that they believe in something bigger than themselves. They believe in a cause. They believe in God. They believe in something noble. They believe that their life is part of something very important and that um, they have a role to play. I think that that is, is very heroic. Um, you know, we don't all have to be Aragorn. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West! But we do have to believe in something in order to be heroic. If we don't believe in anything, I think that that's when we fall into the anti-hero uh, narrative, you know, into despair a lot of times. Um, or if we've put, uh, if we if we've made an idol out of something not bigger than ourselves, like you know, alcoholism or an affair or something like that. Um, if if that's what we believe in, that is not the road to heroism. That's actually not bigger than ourselves. That's smaller. That's smaller than what human beings are capable of. And along the lines of not having to be like Aragorn, <laughs> we all have to remember that um, heroism doesn't have to be super flashy. Here's a great quote from Florence Nightingale. I am of certain convinced that the greatest heroes are those who do their duty in the daily grind of domestic affairs whilst the world whirls as a maddening dreidel. Really like that image of a maddening dreidel. <laughs> a spinning, spinning fast world. And um, it's truly heroic to still carry on sort of with the everyday necessary tasks of living and taking care of your family and your friends and uh, just being a participant in uh, living a life can be can be a heroic act. And along those same lines, very famous quote here, especially since um, the release of the brilliant um, Terrence Malick film called uh, Hidden Life, which I very much recommend. But this is a great quote from uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch. For the growing good of the world is partially dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And I think that that's very important uh, because today we tend to uh, equate uh, heroism with fame. Um, if we think of who we admire, especially, um, you know, in, in uh, I guess, social media culture and things like that. Who do we put on pedestals? Who are we obsessed with? A lot of times it's, uh, it's celebrities or simply people in the public eye. Uh, and that, that just like level of fame being known uh, has sort of been equated to heroism, which has nothing to do with heroism. Um, and a lot of times uh, can be a, uh, a difficulty in becoming heroic uh, to be famous. And I think that um, we have to remember that there are plenty of heroic acts that nobody will ever know about. Um, even if nobody ever takes a video with their iPhone um, or 
you know, makes it go viral on YouTube. Uh, there are so many heroic acts happening every day. And that if we are not um, sort of training ourselves to recognize those acts in other people and in ourselves, we are dangerously close to um, to, to getting confused uh, by the anti-hero narrative and believing that, uh, that that simply being recognized in any capacity uh, is, is equivalent of being heroic, which it is not. If you know so much about it, then why don't you just do it yourself? Because I'm not a writer? I don't have the gifts you have. No, you don't. And you will always be a critic and never an author, and, and the world will, will forget that you ever even lived. Oh, I'm, sh I'm sure they will. But I, but I, no one will forget Joe March. I can believe it. So if you don't immediately recognize that clip, just shame on you because you are not familiar and have not seen at least a dozen times uh, the greatest movie ever made, uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, which came out uh, back in December of 2019. Um, just kidding, although I, kind of. It's, <laughs> it may be my, my favorite movie. Um, I absolutely love her rendition. I love the story of Little Women and I love Jo March. I think she is a amazing heroine um, for so many women and for men too. Uh, she is just, she is a, a bold, smart, and very flawed person who um, overcomes a lot of these things in order to, uh, in, in order to find uh, peace in her life and to pursue the things she wants to do. She's ambitious. Uh, she can be very selfish. She can be short-sighted, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, she overcomes these things. She overcomes her notorious temper, which you hear a little bit here. She can't really take criticism. That's that's certainly a flaw. Um, but she, you know, she grows over time. She grows throughout the novel. She grows throughout the movie, uh, and she and she becomes a heroine. You know, she becomes a hero, and I think that um, heroes like Joe are really important for young people to encounter, um, for anyone to encounter at any age because I think that we can see a lot of ourselves in them. Uh, this is a quote from J.K. Rowling, uh, author of Harry po the Harry Potter books, as you all know, I'm sure. She said, my favorite literary heroine is Jo March. It is hard to overstate what she meant to a small, plain girl called Jo, who had a hot temper and a burning ambition to be a writer. So I think that a lot of young girls uh, read Little Women and really identify with Jo because she's uh, she's a bit of a tomboy. She's a little bit out of step uh, with her society. Um, she's, uh, you know, she has issues with her sisters. Um, but at the end of the day, she's very devoted to her family. Um, she has a very uh, good, kind heart, uh, but she has to overcome a lot of things, especially her temper. And especially um, she has to reconcile sort of what it means uh, to be an ambitious person and also to want to serve others and to support her family and, uh, you know, all these conflicts that we all face in one way or another. So I think that this is a really, really important distinction. Someone like Joe March, compare her to... Um, uh, I have I only watched the first two episodes, but she actually, if you look up antihero, she is the subject of a lot of articles about uh, about antiheroes these days as the heroine or the antiheroine of uh, the Netflix show The Queen's Gambit. 
Um, so, and as I understand it, uh, the story also really differs from the book that it was based on, especially uh, the role that drugs play in her ability to play chess. In the book, they are sort of a hindrance, whereas in the show, they actually uh, make her able to play better. They are sort of, in a way, the source of her success and her coping with her trauma. Um, and that's a very different story. That's a very different story. Um, not not to say that uh, heroines don't have struggles or can't be drug users. <laughs> they, they can be, of course. Um, but the, the role of these vices, uh, it, what, if it's helping them succeed or not. So in Joe's case, you know, we love her for her fiery personality, uh, and that doesn't diminish, but we see her learn how to, um, how to control her temper, how to, how, to, how to harness her emotions in a good way, and how to take criticism. Uh, you know, it's uh, Professor Bear in that scene has has just told her that basically her her stories aren't any good. These stories that she's been uh, sending out to magazines and that have been accepted, and she sort of always had this identity as a writer, and she has all these ambitions, and he knows that she can do better. Um, and a lot of people are very uncomfortable with this scene, but I actually see it as uh, a moment of clarity uh, because actually Professor Bear is the first one to take her art seriously. Um, he knows that she can do better. So again, this calling to do better can be harsh sometimes and sometimes we don't react well to it. Sometimes we we say, you know, you're, you're a critic, you're not a writer, you don't know what you're talking about. We can't take the criticism. Um, and just because you are a literary heroine does not mean that you are exempt from these uh, very natural human emotions. So I think, again, that uh, this is sort of a misunderstanding of heroism a lot of times, is that people think that heroes have to be perfect, and uh, they don't. And as I said before, I think that those kind of stories are actually pretty boring. <laughs> and actually, so in the story of Joe in Little Women, we see uh, a very interesting arc because she actually, she has dreams of heroics. She has dreams of very cliched heroics from the adventure stories she's reading. She wants to go, you know, uh, fight pirates when she's a little girl and, um, you know, have this sort of, this image of what heroism looks like. But it ends up being that her heroism is a very sort of ordinary heroism. Uh, when she cuts off her hair to get enough money so that her mother can visit her father who has been injured while fighting in the Civil War. That ends up being an act of heroism. Um, the way she takes care of her sister Beth when she's very sick and dying, that is an act of heroism. And um, even her own ability to to engage with her writing in a serious way, to take criticism, uh, to be honest with herself, and to grow as an artist becomes heroic. Um, her ability to forgive her sister Amy. Uh, all these things are acts of great heroism, uh, but we see her change in her expectations of what a heroic life looks like. And again, uh, I think she was picturing the Aragorn scene, uh, you know, um, not yet written, but, <laughs> um, but she was picturing something like that, you know, out on the battlefield or out on... Uh, you know, a great ship, um, and especially I think for women's stories, not that women can't or shouldn't do those things, uh, but uh, oftentimes, uh, historically, and even now, um, heroism for women might be uh, a quieter heroism. And I think that sometimes I get very frustrated when I see um, women's heroics has to be, they have to be uh, like an expert at jujitsu. I don't know where that came from. They're always uh, just like amazing, uh, you know, at, at karate and they're punching people out and things like that. I certainly can't do that. I don't relate to that. <laughs> so I think that we have to admit that um, there are more than one way 
that there is more than one way to be a hero. And that sometimes these um, quote unquote domestic stories uh, are very heroic. I mean, it's amazing, you know, what a what a small story Little Women is about this family and these four sisters. And yet, I mean, how many dozens of renditions have been made? We're still reading it today. We're still engaging with the story. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of of uh, young girls are being inspired by Joe March to this day. Uh, and so, there's clearly something there. And again, this goes back to the definition of heroism, um, believing in something bigger than yourself, um, and also this idea that we need to see, yes, we need to see ourselves reflected, we need to see those flaws reflected, um, but we need to see that people can change and that they can overcome them. And I think that what J.K. Rowling was saying was that here was this person who, you know, she felt like she was a small, plain girl called Joe and uh, also had a hot temper and a burning ambition to be a writer and reading Little Women, she got to see someone like her succeed and someone like her face the same sort of struggles that she did and um, come out on top, uh, not just in the literal way of she succeeded at all costs and uh, morally compromised herself in the process, but instead actually she had very high ideals uh, and she rose to the occasion, um, often self-sacrificially, um, if we think about the ways that she cared for her family and even the ways that she uh, sacrificed herself um, to her own art in order to write well and to improve as an artist. So now it's not just uh, women who need to be thinking about quieter forms of heroism. I think that uh, it's important for men to think about too. Uh, and I'm going to touch briefly here on the fact that Pope Francis declared uh, this year, 2021, the year of St. Joseph. And the St. Joseph he is referring to is the husband of Mary, the foster father or adoptive father of Jesus. So a pretty important guy, but he actually, you know, we never hear him say anything in the Gospels. He's completely quiet. Um, the, he famously has the four dreams of St. Joseph, that we can talk about how he responds to those dreams. But he, I think for a long time, um, has been uh, kind of forgotten. I mean, there, there's lots of writings from um, saints throughout history who are commending people to have a devotion to St. Joseph. Um, he's, he's considered the protector of the family and the universal church, and he has a very cool nickname, uh, Terror of Demons, St. Joseph Terror of Demons. So he's definitely uh, a cool guy to get to know, um, but I think we kind of forget about him. Um, if you're Catholic, maybe you spend a lot of time thinking of, of Mary. There's a lot of Marian devotion. But St. Joseph, we're like, you know, he's there, he, he does, he's, he, uh, unlike the rest of his family, um, okay, again, this is in, uh, if you're not Catholic, uh, I think you can still appreciate this from a literary perspective even, is that, uh, you know, St. Joseph, unlike his wife, Mary, um, was born with sin. Uh, <laughs> Mary is considered uh, born without sin. She's essentially perfect, which doesn't mean that she didn't struggle with things. It just means that she responded perfectly. She didn't have um, original sin. And then his son, his adoptive son, Jesus, is the son of God. So you can imagine that this was sort of um, a house with high expectations, <laughs> I would think. Um, and uh, I think that I relate a lot more to St. Joseph than maybe the other members of his family, um, because he was just a normal guy, basically. Uh, so we can see, though, through his actions, um, there, he is a quiet, tender, hardworking man. 
and his heroism is not flashy at all. Um, there are some saints, you know, I mean, there are crazy stories about saints. Um, you know, there are bi-locating saints who are hopping around uh, cathedral ceilings. There are saints who are being martyred in these just crazy ways who are proclaiming the gospel. Um, there are crusading saints. Um, you know, St. George is killing dragons. I mean, there are, is lots of flashy heroism uh, if you want to go through the history of the saints. But here we have St. Joseph who is, um, again, doesn't say a word in the whole Bible. Um, we don't get to hear his voice. We don't get to hear his words. And yet he is um, held up as this amazing, amazing saint. And Pope Francis wrote uh, a very, very beautiful um, letter uh, when he proclaimed this year of St. Joseph called A Father's Heart. Uh, you can find it online. And I'm just going to read a few things from that letter that show what kind of a hero, what kind of a saint St. Joseph is. And again, I think that people, um, you know, both inside and outside of religious traditions have this common misconception that saints are perfect. And they aren't. They are not perfect. Um, if you take any time to read about any of any any saints, um, and, and again, sainthood uh, means, at least in the context of Catholicism, that has been they have been proclaimed saints by the Church, has been publicly recognized. Of course, there are m literally you know millions, uh, countless uh, saints who are not recognized by the Church. These are just um, people that basically the Church says we are pretty sure that this person is in heaven and uh, we would like to encourage a devotion to them because they represent something that we think is admirable, a life that we think reflects uh, very important things that people can aspire to. So that, that's all that means. Um, it does not mean how we commonly use the word saint in uh, everyday vernacular. It doesn't mean, oh, you know, they're a saint, they're perfect, they have no struggles. Um, they have no temptations. They have, uh, that doesn't mean they don't have a, a temper or, um, <laughs> or have, uh, you know, a drinking problem or uh, any, any issues, you know, I mean, these are, saints have had all kinds of problems. Um, the way they become saints is how they respond to those problems. So again, just like with Joe March, a hero is not somebody who doesn't struggle, who doesn't have flaws, who doesn't encounter hardships. Um, it's how they respond to those things. It's whether um, we celebrate them as heroes or as anti-heroes. Uh, so if we think about the stories of the saints, they are heroes in the classic sense in that they, they have a challenge set before them and they rise to the occasion. So um, I'm gonna read again a few quotes here just from what Pope Francis said about St. Joseph. And I think some of it um, may be surprising uh, to, to you um, if you just think about if we have sort of these cliched images of saints and of heroes in our mind. He writes, tenderness is the best way to touch the frailty within us. Pointing fingers and judging others are frequently signs of an inability to accept our own weaknesses, our own frailty. Joseph accepted Mary unconditionally. He trusted in the angel's words. The nobility of Joseph's heart is such that what he learned from the law he made dependent on charity. Today in our world, where psychological, verbal, and physical violence toward women is so evident, Joseph appears as the figure of a respectful and sensitive man. Even though he does not understand the bigger picture, he makes a decision to protect Mary's good name, her dignity, and her life. In his hesitation about how best to act, God helped him 
by enlightening his judgment. Often in life, things happen whose meanings we do not understand. Our first reaction is frequently one of disappointment and rebellion. Joseph set aside his own ideas in order to accept the course of events and, mysterious as they seemed, to embrace them, take responsibility for them, and make them part of his own history. Unless we are reconciled with our own history, we will be unable to take a single step forward, for we will always remain hostage to our expectations and the disappointments that follow. So, so many beautiful things here that Pope Francis wrote about St. Joseph. I especially love, um, you know, that he's, he's putting uh, St. Joseph forward as an example of a holy, heroic man. And that he is a very sensitive man. He's a quiet man. He is, uh, you know, an, an example of masculinity. You know, if we want to use the language from today, when a lot of people are talking about the ideas of what is toxic masculinity, what, um, you know, how do we teach our sons how to be good men in the world? What does it mean to be a good man today? St. Joseph uh, gives this example of a hero who, um, you know, is, is, is not violent, is, is a protector, is caring um, and is self-sacrificial, uh, a respectful and sensitive man. He didn't understand the bigger picture, but he makes a decision to protect Mary's good name, her dignity, and her life. So I think that's just beautiful. Um, and I'll just read this one last section here. Pope Francis writes, Joseph's attitude encourages us to accept and welcome others as they are without exception and to show special concern for the weak, for God chooses what is weak. He is the father of orphans and protector of widows, who commands us to love the stranger in our midst. I like to think that it was from St. Joseph that Jesus drew inspiration for the parable of the prodigal son and the merciful father. And we should also remember, um, this is me talking now, not Pope Francis, um, uh, that we should also remember that in all the all four Gospels, um, Joseph is referred to as, um, as Jesus' father. So for all all respective purposes, you know, he is showing uh, the world what it looks like to be a merciful fa father, which I think is why he brings up this idea of the prodigal son uh, at the end here, the prodigal son and the merciful father. So just a beautiful example here. Um, again, this misunderstanding that saints are perfect, they are not, um, but they respond to their imperfections um, with endless conviction and endless courage to um, better themselves. So just to conclude these ideas here, I think that the rise of the anti-hero narrative comes from our need to see people um, as, as flawed. We need to see that people like us, um, very messed up people who are uh, still trying, trying our hardest. We need to, we need to see them reflected in our art. And I think that that, that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think that we do risk a little bit, though, when we don't have heroes like Joe March um, and instead have heroes that all too willingly uh, give in to their vices uh, and they don't actually show any growth because the most powerful stories are when we can see ourselves reflected in those flaws, but then also see that it is possible to overcome them. And I think it's also important, uh, again, to note that um, heroics does not have to be of the flashy kind and that fame, again, has nothing to do with heroism. Uh, it, can, it can be a consequence of heroism, but it is not necessarily. 
So um, the hidden lives, uh, the, the, that great Florence Nightingale quote about the, um, the domestic drudgery and, and the spinning dreidel of the world, the maddening dreidel of the world, that these can be very, very heroic acts. Um, and people like Joe March, um, who uh, changes her mind, basically, about what a heroic life looks like. Uh, and St. Joseph, who is a quiet, uh, sensitive, protective saint, um, shows us that heroism is not just for, um, for, for physical warriors, uh, is not just for knights in shining, shining armor, but is for everybody in everyday actions. So to close out this episode, um, I want to give you a recommendation. I try to do that at the end of every episode, just give you something that's inspired me lately. And uh, this one is, uh, it has nothing to do with what we've talked about today. So uh, just on a different topic here, um, in the uh, February 8th um, issue of The New Yorker, there's a great uh, sketchbook page by Paul Rogers uh, that tells this story about um, Paul Desmond, the original saxophonist of the Dave Brubeck Quartet, uh, and how he wrote this piece of music for Audrey Hepburn called Audrey. And he never knew if she heard it or not. And apparently he had quite a crush on her, and that was sort of why he wrote this song. So I, I'm I'll put the link to the sketch in the show notes. It's really charming, but um, essentially uh, the story is is that uh, Paul um, Desmond had this crush on Audrey Hepburn, and he apparently um, the quartet was playing across the street from where she was performing in a play, and he would go every night and watch her sign autographs, and um, that's about the time when he he wrote this song called Audrey. And Desmond himself died of lung cancer in 1977, and he never knew if Audrey Hepburn heard this song or knew that it was about her or anything like that. But when Hepburn died in 1993, her ex-husband called Brubeck to ask if his quartet would play Audrey at the memorial service. And uh, and Dave Brubeck was surprised. He's like, I didn't know that you even knew about this song. And uh, that's when her her ex-husband revealed that uh, he said, my wife listened to that song every night before she went to bed. So I think that's just a really sweet, beautiful story. And then, of course, I looked up the, the song, Audrey, and um, it sounds like Audrey Hepburn to me. I think it's, it's lovely. So um, I'm a big Audrey Hepburn fan. I'll also link to an article I wrote about Audrey Hepburn and sort of her inspiring takes on life. So you could read that while listening to this uh, beautiful piece called Audrey by uh, the Dave Brubeck Quartet. So I will uh, leave you with with that song playing and um, thank you so much for listening. Again, my name is Katie Marquette and you've been listening to Born of Wonder. And if you've been enjoying what you're hearing, head over to iTunes and just leave a short review. I would so appreciate it.
And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. <laughs>